Good morning. Glad to see you this morning. We'll get this uh, settled here and get it figured out and everything else. In the meantime, turn to Romans chapter 8. I think and I pray this be the last the last week on my stool. On my high horse. Okay. Um, and uh, I'm getting stronger each day, and I think that I'll be able to get back to my full routine of running up and down the steps and screaming and hollering and everything else. And so uh, I'm looking forward to that day because this thing is very uncomfortable. But I want to, at the outset, ask you to forgive me for just telling you an untruth. I told you I was going to talk about the elect this week get to that passage but I am not because of the verse that we're in contains so much stuff that we cannot pass by we really cannot pass by it and we are probably only going to get through the first two phrases of this verse today because this verse deals with exactly what we were singing about just a while ago when I think of God, His Son, not sparing. That's an important, an important part of verse 32 that we want to look at this morning. But it says, He, he bled and died to take away my sins. That, that's only part of it. I wish they would have included. And to appease the wrath of God. One of the reasons that Jesus died, that's part of that propitiation the wrath of God, coming and taking the wrath upon Himself so that we, we would not experience the wrath of God Himself. Jesus did that for us. And so next week as we get into this, we will finish up the latter part of verse 32 and we will talk about who is the for us. In fact, we will, the whole topic will be that little phrase. And all that we will discuss next week is the topic for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? So if you want to invite folks to come who probably have never heard a sermon like that or who are on the, on the cuff of thinking, well, maybe I need to believe that, maybe I don't. For those who just don't believe it and want to throw tomatoes, uh, that is fine. Invite them to come. But we will be talking about that subject, especially if you're reading verse 32, which I want you to read along. It says, He who would not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how would he not also with him graciously give us all things? get to that latter part next week. Who is that for us? Because if you think about it, just let me give you a teaser. You think about it, the Son gave Him up for us all. If all is included, then undoubtedly, Jesus is giving everyone in the world, lost and saved, all these things graciously that He spoke of from chapter 1 through chapter 8. Justification, salvation, reconciliation, peace with God. Everything. Because He gives it. Right? If He gave us up for us all, 
then he gives us all these graciously all these things. So we want to talk about that because it jumps right into the next verse. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What's he mean by that? It goes back to that word for us all. So we will talk about that and I'll dedicate that whole sermon on that next week to talk about that and look at scripture and see if it basically corroborates what Paul is saying here. Because this is not something that Paul made up. This is something that Jesus spoke about. And we'll look at that next week. But first, as we're looking at this passage, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things that God is for us who can be against us? And we talk about there is no effective opposition. God is for you. If you are a believer in Christ, God is for you. He stands with you. He is working in you. And so therefore, God is for you. Now we come to this next passage, this next word. It says, he who did not spare his own son. And what he does like a good lawyer is basically he makes a statement. And now he give, he's giving conclusive evidence that there is no effective opposition against us. Notice what he says. He did not spare his son. Now I want you to understand something. First of all, that word spare basically is an intensive love that God gives to us in not sparing his son. That word intensive means to strong, forceful. It's intense. You've heard the term. You watch things and you go, ooh, that was intense. Well, this is an intensive love in that God did not spare his son. If you describe it perhaps like as a guy went to a doctor and he says, Doctor, help me every time I drink a cup of coffee, I have intense, intense pain in my eye. The doctor said, well, you might want to try to remove the spoon from your cup before you drink, and that will all go away. Intense, strongly. Basically, the reason I say it's intensive love there's this little thing in the Greek language called an intensive particle. I'm not going to try to explain it. But basically, he uses it in the beginning of this verse. And that intensive article shows us that there is strength behind what Paul has said. The translation, and maybe some of your translations say this, Surely, surely, he did not spare his own son. Now, Greek scholar A.T. Robinson translated like this. Who as much as this? In other words, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And who as much as this? That he didn't despair his son. So what Paul is saying, this is an intensive love of God that he gives to us by not sparing his son. Now, when we think of the word spare, it means to refrain or refrain from harm. They have been refrained from harm. So this is what he's saying, actually. And so if you want to look at what the definition of the intensive particle is, it's basically to intensify. Makes sense, right? To intensify. 
God has done the most intensive thing, the most supreme thing, the most strongest thing for us. He did not spare. That word spare basically says that we are rescued from harm. That's what we need to understand. So it's an intensive love, but it's an extensive love. Extensive love. That means it's wide, it's large, much larger than we can imagine. So when we're talking about this passage, this passage that deals with the doctrine of atonement, we need to understand, we can go back to the children's hall and say, what kind of love is this? Y'all remember it? It's what? Hands it. It's deep and what? Wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. It is a deep, deep love. We sing a song. It's in our hymnal. It's called the deep, deep love of Jesus. And it was given to us by a Christian hymn writer by, by the name of Samuel Trevor Francis. He lived in 1834, died in 1925. But as a teenager... He had a turning point in his life because he was standing on a bridge over the River Thames in London, contemplating jumping in and committing suicide, and he saw the water flowing, and he experienced the renewal of faith. He experienced the love of God, and he went on to author many poems. One, one of them was, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast unmeasured, boundless, free. Y'all ever heard it? I bet you have if you sang it. Sound like this. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Y'all know it? Kind of. Get it But this is what he says. I can just imagine he came up with these words as he's looking at the River Thames and said, man, this is nothing compared to the love of God. He said, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love. Leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. The deep, deep love of Jesus. It's the love of God. Last week we sang the song, The Love of God. What does it say in the chorus? Y'all know it? The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless, right? Deepness, deep and wide, how strong. That's intensive, that's extensive love. That is what is bound up in what Paul is arguing. Look, if God is for us, look at the love that He gives to us. It's intensive, it's extensive. That's the kind of love that God has for us. And as I said, the word spared, if you look at that word, it means to rescue from harm in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The same word that Paul uses here is used in Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham was about to strike his son Isaac, God says, you have not withheld your son. You have not spared him, your only son from me. And think about this. What did our father do? He did not spare his son. In fact, Jesus in the garden, remember what he said? Father, if it be possible, what? Let this cup pass from me. This is Jesus in his humanity. Suffering. He's praying. He's sweating drops of blood. But he says, not as I will, but as 
you live away. And the Father did not spare the Son. In fact, all through the life of Jesus and His teachings, He said, John chapter 5, I can do nothing of my own as I hear, I judge, my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And it was not the Father's will to spare him. So God did not spare him. As R.C. Sproul said, God spared nothing, not even His Son, so that we might be saved. So what He's doing, Paul is bringing forth and forth the price of our redemption to prove in this argument, to prove that God loves us, God favors us, God is for us. That is absolutely clear evidence because He gave His Son. How extensive is the love? How extensive? Well, in the words of the famous theologian Buzz Lightyear, to infinity and what? Beyond. That's what he's done. Now, this is going to set the stage for chapter 9. Because we are going to discuss this. Because it's going to tear some of you up. It really is. When we get to it. But I want you to think on it because we have to discuss it. The question is, does God love everyone? That's a question that we're going to have to answer. Does he love everyone the same way at the same time? Does he? Well, we're going to get over to that in John chapter, I mean Romans chapter 9, where he says, But Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. And that word doesn't mean just, well, I dislike him a little bit. It doesn't mean that. Discuss it. We're going to talk about that. That's for another time. But as we're looking at this one, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That is an important thing that we really need to understand. That delivered him, gave him up. So it begs the question who really killed Jesus? Who killed him? Some say the Jews. Well, the Bible says the Jews did. Some say the Romans did. So therefore the Romans did because they crucified him. Some say it was Judas and he set the stage. And so it was Judas that actually killed Jesus. Well, according to the scripture, you know who it was? It was gone. It was gone. Listen to Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The instruments that God used were lawless men, but the plan was God's. And it was always the plan of God. Now, it counteracts the argument also that it was Satan that put it in the hearts of the Jews and the Romans and Judas to kill the Son of God. And the devil then succeeded. But it wasn't the devil that was responsible for the death of Christ. In fact, Jesus even said, for this purpose I came, John chapter 12, to go to the cross. Paul's argument lets us know that the cross 
was not just the action of men and men alone. It was God fulfilling the prophetic word to Isaiah that he gave to Isaiah. The plan that God had before the beginning of time. Now do me a favor. Turn to Isaiah. That's in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 53. I want us to look at it just quickly this morning. Isaiah chapter 53. We want to look at it. We want to see it. And see who was it. Huh? Who was it? Beginning in chapter 4, verse 53. Surely he has borne our griefs. Who is that? That's Jesus. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by who? Men? Smitten by God. And afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We look at that and we see what who did that? That was God's plan. He was smitten by God. Now jump over to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to do what? Crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his end. So what you see there is going back to chapter 10. I mean verse 10. It was the will of the Lord that crushed you. He was smitten by God. But it's saying it's found in the same place in the New Testament. Turn now to Acts chapter two, Acts chapter four. There's a prayer here that oftentimes we overlook, but it teaches this same kind of thing, and we need to understand it. Peter had been arrested. Peter and John had been arrested. They were released, and they come. And in verse twenty-three in Acts chapter four. It says this, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and all the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do. Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Who predestined that to take place? God did. What was the plan of God? The plan of God was to deliver, to give up Jesus Christ for us. Folks, so it was in the mind and in the heart and in the plan, the predestined plan of God, then to give Jesus up for our sins, to placate 
the wrath of God. Since it's Reformation Sunday, I thought I'd enter a quote by John Calvin. It says, This passage ought to remind us of what Christ brings to us and to awaken us to contemplate His riches. For as He is a pledge of God's infinite love towards us, so He has not been sent to us void of blessings or empty, but filled us with all celestial treasures so that they who possess Him may not want anything necessary for their perfect happiness. So God gave Him to us, for us, and then what we get in replace of that, He is going to give us all things. That is essentially what Paul is saying to us. And that is the argument. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. God gave us the Son. How in the world then, if He gave us the greatest gift, the most perfect gift, the most supreme gift, don't you think He's going to give us other things? This is what He's saying. This is what He's doing. The death of Christ on the cross, giving the Son, delivering the Son, to pay the penalty of the sin, is essential to Paul's argument. God gives us Jesus as our substitute, as our sacrifice, and that's a guarantee of what God will further do for us. Why? Because He favors us. And folks, that should be our comfort when we look at this. That's why Paul could say, just now I'm sure of this, or he said this in Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will do what? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When he began a good work, he was speaking in context of salvation that was brought to them. God says, I'm going to complete that work. You are going to be sanctified. You are going to be glorified. I am going to complete that work. What kind of comfort is that? Because I know, as I said last week, that there are some of us who will believe at different times and doubt at different times. How in the world will we be Christians because of what we have done? And we get accused over and over again in our minds about the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren. But this is our comfort. If God is for us, He's going to complete what He started. He's not going to let you fall away. He's not going to let you go astray. He is going to love you and He's going to discipline you to bring you back if you fall away. But you're not going to lose it. You're going to keep it. Because the one who's going to keep it is God. So therefore, you are His and His favor is towards you. It's the same principle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, to which, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that we can be protect, uh, that through them we can be protectors of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Folks, it's nothing more than what Jesus already said. We went back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. What is he saying to us? He tells us, hey guys, don't be anxious about life. Don't worry about that, what you will eat, what you will drink, or your body, what you put on. It's not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air that neither sow nor reap or gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father does what? 
feeds them, gives things to them, feeds them. That's what he's saying. And he says, are you not of more value than they? And which of you about being ancient can add one single hour to his span? And why are you anxious about clothing? In other words, he's saying this, look, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself, is what he says in verse 34. But right previous to that, he said, Seek ye first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these what? Things will be added unto you. Remember how we started the verse, verse 31? What shall we say of these things, the things that God has given to us? These are the things that God has given to us, this righteousness justification. Man, it is so much, so much that God has given to us. And therefore, once He's given to us, He's going to complete those gifts and give everything we need for a life of godliness. That's what He's doing. That's the wonderful thing. If we look over in chapter 7, most of you know this by memory. What is it? Ask and it will be what? What? Given unto you. Seek and you will find, not that it will be open to you for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if the son asks him for bread, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see this great and awesome God. God has given to us He will therefore graciously give us all things that we need to grow in sanctification. Why does He do that? Because it's His job to conform us to the image of Christ and He will give us everything we need throughout this life so that we will become like Christ. Now the question comes to this. Are you having trouble seeing the things that God gives us through the Son? Are you having that problem, that mental block? Are you seeing life as absolutely and totally negative? Are you seeing it that God is working to complete what He began in you? In other words, if you are in that latter category, perhaps you are not being receptive to the things that God has done for you and is doing in you. You're just not receptive. You're not receiving it. Your hand is closed to the gifts that God has given you. Let me give you an illustration about that. I caught the last four minutes yesterday of the Michigan-Michigan State game. If you did not see that, it was 30 to 14, I understand, in the third, middle of third quarter in favor of Michigan. Michigan State ordered back and tied the game, right? And they were they were doing that, got that, got, I think that tied the game or they were behind, I'm not sure. So I didn't see the whole thing. But all I do know is they scored a touchdown. A running back scored five touchdowns on the day, rushed for 195 yards. It was a great, great performance by that young man. But fortunately he did it with about four minutes left. Michigan takes the ball. They begin to drive all the way down the field. There were some penalties. Drive all the way down the field. It gets to a minute. A minute left in the game. They are going to go for the win. 
the quarterback backs up and he throws the ball towards the sideline. And this freshman, as the tight end was going up to catch the ball, this freshman kind of looks back and holds his hand up in between the hands of the receiver. And lo and behold, the ball stuck right there in this little freshman's hand. And he pulled it down and fell down, thus sealing the game for Michigan State, upsetting number six, Michigan Folks, here's the point. If he had thrust his hand up and it was turned the other direction, what would have happened? Would have hit, would have hit, fallen away, and given Michigan another opportunity to score and win the game. But he didn't. What did he do? Put it out as an act of reception. As an act of reception find out through the ministry, ministry throughout my life, that Christians are very poor receivers. We are very poor receivers. We don't have that hand. We often have it like this. Blocking. Blocking things through negativity that we think that God is trying to destroy us and not be for us. And therefore, we believe that He really doesn't have our welfare in mind. Folks, here's what you have to do. How do you get out of that? You open your mind to the eternal purposes of God. You set your mind on these things. That's why Paul said, set your mind on things above. What is God doing in your life? What is He doing? He's conforming you to the image of Christ. And if you're having problems and tribulations and trials, it's because He is wearing those things off in your life that are rough areas, and He's trying to get you to be like Christ. Don't fight that receiving. Ask yourself those questions. God, what are you trying to teach me? What do you want me to learn? How do I respond in these situations? What is He doing in, his, in your life? What is His eternal plan? Well, I can tell you, He's going to make you like Christ. And if you have that hand like this, and these things are just bouncing off, guess what? Because God loves you so much, He's going to bring things back up in your life so that hopefully you will turn around and receive it. So you have a choice. Here's the choice. Are you going to receive it? Are you going to get, keep doing what you're doing and God has to send a little bit stronger tribulation, a little bit stronger suffering, a little bit more trial in your life to get you to wake up and turn your hands. Say, look, I'm giving you good gifts. What will you do? So, here's the admonition. God is for you. God fingers you. Open your hearts, your hands, your mind. Receive what God has done. Like that little freshman, embrace it. I mean, once he, it fell in his hand, you think he just went, oh. No. What did he do? He pulled it down. He embraced it. Fell on the ground. There. Didn't want to fumble it. He embraced it. You will see that you will win. Because God's for you. God's for you. Father. Thank you for the precious gift of your Son. And Lord, we know, as James tells us, every good 
perfect gift comes from you. Do you receive that perfect gift in Jesus Christ? Father, thank you for that. Let us see that you have favored us in not sparing our son, but delivering him for us. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. And Lord, I pray, pray for that one that may be here today that has not trusted you as Savior. Lord, would you open their heart to believe? And Father, let them see that you are granting them repentance and the gift of faith so that they may have new life. Lord, I pray that you would do your holy will in the life of anyone here that does not know you. And I ask it in Jesus' name.